And we're back, ladies and gentlemen, on the Philippe Matthews Radio Show. Thank you for tuning in, wherever you are tuning in from around the world. I've got a special guest with me today. Dr. Jacqueline Battalore is the author of Birth of a White Nation, The Invention of White People and Its Relevance Today, a fascinating book on race in America that begins with an exploration of the moment in time when white people as a separate uh, and distinct group of humanity were invented through legislation and the uh, enactment of laws. Dr. Battalore is an anti-racist writer. She's an attorney and professor of sociology and anthropology and criminal justice at St. Xavier University in Chicago, my hometown. How are you, Doc? I'm doing great. Thank you. Fantastic. All right, let's get started here. This was absolutely fascinating. I first came to know you, obviously, from uh, that YouTube video that you had up where you were lecturing. And, you know, I think the first thing out of your mouth was is that white people were invented as of 1681. Oh, my God. Well, you know, not too many people have ever heard of that particularly from uh, uh, a white woman. So you have to break this down for us. What, uh, what, what, what caused you to do this level of research? And then let's get into uh, where did white people come from and how were they invented? Sure. Well, when I was doing graduate um, uh, research, I was in the law library and I was not focusing on this area um, at all. I was actually exploring um, legal restrictions on marriage. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I was in the law library and I was looking at various restrictions in law and I was going back and back and back in time. And at some point I found myself in the 1600s looking at um, colonial Virginia um, uh, legal enactments Mm -hmm. and, and something strange I knew something strange was happening, um, but I couldn't quite put my finger on it. And then I, you know, went to bed that night after a long day of research and um, I woke up and I had this very clear awareness of what the strange thing was. Mm. And what it was is that this category for humanity that I am uh, intimately familiar with, it's on my birth certificate (laughs) from the moment I was born. Um, and, you know, have been imposed on me, self-imposed and otherwise, um, throughout my whole life. And that is the human category white. And it had vanished in these legal enactments at some point. But I I couldn't do anything with it at that particular moment because I had to con- stay focused on my dissertation project and um, get mm-hmm. that completed. Mm-hmm. But I had a chance to pursue this um, discovery Um, through a sabbatical that I received um, through my employer at St. Xavier University. And so the book, Birth of a White Nation, is the fruit of that research. I I discovered that, pardon me, um, that white people as this category white itself um, doesn't appear in law until a very specific date, specifically 1681. Mm. Um, And that's very curious, right? Lawmakers don't just go coming up with new terms to lump groups of people within unless there's a purpose, there's a reason for it. Um, And so the work of Theodore Allen and Edmund Morgan um, and and other historians, those two are, their work is perhaps the most prominent, um, was really important for linking the invention of this new category called white people with Bacon's rebellion and the threat that it posed to the ruling elite in colonial Virginia. Um, and so 
you know, that's the story. It, it was by accident. I think some of the best discoveries in, in history and science and otherwise can all absolutely. absolutely quite by accident. <laughs> so, okay. So we, we now know that white people were invented as a, as a race of humanity in 1681. The next a logical question would be why? <laughs> sure. Well, before we even get to the why, the part of the story that that I know when I discovered, I, I was it, it was completely new information to me. And as I I lecture around the country about this particular um, historical and legal information, um, it doesn't matter what group I'm speaking to, whether they are PhDs, whether they are lawyers, whether they're undergraduate students or K through 12 teachers, it it really doesn't matter. Everyone consistently is absolutely shocked to realize that prior to the last quarter of the 1600s in the British North American colonies, mm -hmm. um, persons, free persons of African descent and persons of British descent who were free of indenture, they, these groups shared the same rights and responsibilities as a matter of law. And so mm -hmm. to just concretize that, um, what did that mean? That meant a, uh, a man of African descent um, who was free could vote, and they did. He could own um, an enslaved person or an indentured servant, and they did. Um, they could run for public office, although I, I couldn't find anything in the record of, of a person of African descent who did that, but I know mm -hmm. that legally um, they could. Um, and so... To, to realize that there actually is a moment that we can turn to in pre-U.S. history, but on the land that is now called the United States, uh, there was a, an example of persons of African descent and, and largely British, although there were other Europeans as well, mm -hmm. uh, living together in, in relative equality. And again, you know, I can offer some nuances to that. Uh, you have to look at people who stood at the same class standing. Mm -hmm. um, and so I should be very clear that the ruling elite were British and had light skin. And so they, they were an exclusive uh, group um, in that regard. But the other um, variations of class that fell below there, um, it didn't matter whether you were, um, your origins were British or, or African. And, and there's one other important um, caveat to that, mm -hmm. and that is that persons of African descent could be purchased as enslaved people. They couldn't be made slaves by virtue of British law, but they could be um, purchased already enslaved, which was sort of a, a legal trickery of British law at the time. And persons of British descent were prohibited by British law from being enslaved. Um, so they came um, to work under terms of indenture. So that's mm -hmm. pretty significant. <laughs> I don't want to create a, you know, all was happiness and everything was equal because that's right. um, not the full picture. But in terms of class standing and being free of enslavement or indenture, that location within colonial society was um, quite equitable. So what did you, as you started to, as you accidentally uncovered uh, this hidden history, if you will, uh, how, how did it affect you personally uh, as a person who is 
or has been for all of your life identified as that very uh, label and category. Well, sure, as you can imagine, it completely rocked my world. And it was, I remember feeling so many, some even seemingly um, contradictory things. I felt um, just devastated to learn that this, this label that has been attached to me and I have felt an attachment to for my whole life was such a destructive, harmful force. Mm. Um, I felt free. Now that I understood, I had a a tremendous sense of freedom in Mm -hmm. in my thoughts and even in my sense of self. And um, I also, I remember being angry that Mm -hmm. I, because it, seemed as if I had been denied this knowledge, as if somebody before us had it and then kept it from us. I I don't think Mm -hmm. that's a very accurate (laughs) portrayal at this point, but I did feel that way on on the Mm -hmm. front end. Um, And and so, you know, I just finished, I'm working on this new book. I think I've shared that with you. And I think it will be called How White Are You? But I'm not sure yet. (laughs) Um, And and I just was writing about the. Recall, reflecting on this moment and and my own struggles with my own identity and and how this no, new knowledge has absolutely transformed me, um, really down to my core, and and my goodness, it has directed the the sole focus of my professional work mm-hmm. has been directed in further exploring the meanings of this discovery. Um, making links between um, history and the present, how, how this creation of this group of humanity called white people and it's um, it being imbued from its very founding with the presumption of white superiority to, to think about and consider how that continues to shape institutions, structures, relationships um, today. Um, so I've, you know, I've never looked back in many ways. Wow. How long have, have you been doing, how long from the time that you discovered this to now, how many years are, you, are we talking about? Uh, I think I would say 2012. Okay. All right. So uh, in the book, uh, you talk about a pivotal moment that, that, you know, one would say, well, well, what was the reason that they, they decided to do this? Because, um, well, you know, things weren't great but things weren't that bad. But it was because of Bacon's Rebellion, which there's a lot of uh, misnomers surrounded by Bacon's Rebellion. And of course, what you have brought out is never mentioned. Uh, But talk to us about the significance of Bacon's Rebellion and how that rocked what was, I guess, considered back then the 1% to create these laws. Sure. Well, the thing to note about Bacon's Rebellion is it was enormous and lengthy. I mean, when we think of a rebellion, you think maybe a week or two, perhaps a month. Bacon's Rebellion lasted... It literally rocked the entire... Well, you know... Literally, the colony of Virginia, I mean, it was a corporation. The corporation was rocked. The, Mm -hmm. The rebellion lasted well over a year. It was led by Nathaniel Bacon, and he he actually was relatively elite um, 
but he was really disgusted with the lack of a violent response on the part of the other um, ruling elite um, men of British descent in Virginia at the time. And he wanted to um, attack the surrounding friendly tribal people. Um, and he was really angry that they wouldn't agree to do that. So Bacon's Rebellion, it, it's very complicated. Um, I don't want to present it as simple. I focus on one part of it because for purposes of the invention of white people, it's very much central. But the, we can't forget that the first phase of Bacon's Rebellion was really targeted um, against tribal peoples and was a, very much a slaughter of them. And so phase two of Bacon's Rebellion was focused on the, the ruling elite. Right, at, right Just prior to Bacon's Rebellion, things were getting, um, there were significant changes going on. Mm -hmm. They included things like um, the price of tobacco had dropped, the um, taxes um, on tobacco had increased, the king gave much of the farmable land um, to his friends, and so there wasn't a lot even if you were fortunate enough to survive your term of indenture or the period during which you were enslaved on, on large landholding and then were freed, mm -hmm. uh, people who then were released from, from servitude um, were finding it much more difficult to make it, to make a life of their own. It was becoming far mm -hmm. more um, strict. The mm -hmm. numbers of poor people in, in England who were sent over to work um, suddenly began to narrow significantly, and the the continual need for a new labor supply um, it persisted, and so they were completely panicked about where their um, labor force was going to was going to come from, and so they began to turn more significantly at this time to stolen boys, girls, mothers, fathers, um, uh, men and women. Um, stolen from Africa and, and rendered slaves in transports between Africa and um, North America. So we get, wow. began to see an increase in that. And so the, the British who were here um, in colonial North America, they found um, because the large landholders were really panicked about having enough laborers for the mix to plant the seeds and harvest the tobacco, um, they imposed really harsh punishments for relatively minor um, infractions. So like stealing a hog could add five years to your, um, your term of work. Mm -hmm. And so conditions were really um, difficult and people were finding it um, that there are opportunities to, to make it on their own after having completed their agreements for work um, their opportunities dramatically narrowed. So Nathaniel Bacon didn't have to look very hard to find disgruntled people in the colony. Mm -hmm. um, and that shows by virtue of the fact that, um, you know, his for the forces who were part of the rebellion included people of African descent and European descent. And the vast majority of the people in the colony, it should be noted, were poor British men. Mm hmm Okay, and they were they were really angry that their chances to make it were were declining and narrowing, mm -hmm. and at the same time, a very small group um, of people in the colony were doing quite well. And of course, we in 2017 know this all too well that the one percent 
um, are, are doing exceptionally well, even at times where the masses are doing much worse. Wow. Absolutely. Um, okay, so that, 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 that helps uh, connect more of the dots. Um, so basically, as a result of these laws of 1681, they uh, uh, always get the, always mispronounce the word um, uh, anti-messagination. Um, that's a big word. Most people have not heard of it uh, unless they have uh, uh, dealt with um, uh, trying to marry outside of their race during a certain time and period. Speak to us about anti-messagination and uh, what, why, what it means, why is it relevant, uh, and how is it uh, affecting us and these laws today? So the significance of anti-miscegenation laws, let me first just define generally what they are. Anti-miscegenation law is a body of law that involved placing restrictions on marriage, specifically they were laws that prohibited white people from marrying various non-white people. Every mm -hmm. single anti-miscegenation law that was ever passed in the United States um, was passed by virtue of state law, and every one of them prohibited a white person from marrying a person of African descent. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they had, like in California, there was a whole laundry list of um, people seen as non-white that white people were prohibited from marrying. Um, so, so after the chi uh, large numbers of Chinese came after the discovery of gold in 1848, they were added to the list. White people could not marry Chinese people. Um, then when Japanese began to come after the Chinese Exclusion Act was passed, then they simply changed the wording to mongrel, which was meant to capture um, everybody who would fall into the group today called Asians. Mm -hmm. um, and they they included, they prohibited marriage with a Pacific Islander, a person of African descent, um, as well as, as Native Americans. Wow. Wow. So this body of law, um, it, it's often described, I always try to make, I'm, I'm very intentional, uh, excuse me, intentional about um, articulating this particular point because so often I read in history books um, a description of anti-miscegenation law as laws that made interracial marriage illegal and I really don't like that. It's a very problematic description because it, 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 it whitewashes it. It makes it seem as though, oh, we were all prohibited from marrying outside of a race, but that simply mm -hmm. isn't true. Mm -hmm. Anti-miscegenation law was solely concerned with white people um, and prohibited them from marrying um, various groups. Always, always, always prohibited them from marrying persons of African descent. So that's generally what anti-miscegenation law is. The law of um, the first appearance of, of a group of humanity labeled white people, um, we actually find it in, in a law that was the first anti-miscegenation law. Mm -hmm. So what it did was we, we have to all, it, it's also important for us to um, know that in colonial Virginia and Maryland, there was a dramatic gender imbalance, roughly um, 10 to 12 men for every woman. Mm. So it helps us to make sense of a law that was passed in 1664 in Maryland, actually, that um, punished um, – and here's the language we want to pay attention to. So the, the language of the law in 1664 um, punished 
British and other freeborn women who married enslaved Negro men. So that's mm-hmm. the language of the law. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we know that plenty of uh, mostly British women did um, marry men of African descent. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Pardon me. And um, so that gender imbalance may help us understand why this was such um, an offense. And you, the language of that law of 1664 is really important because um, it was the law of 1664, excuse me, it was actually an amendment to the law of 1664 that um, took place in 1681 and reflects the first use of white to reflect a group of humanity. So that law said um, British and other white women are prohibited from marrying enslaved Negro men. So that's where we see the first assertion of whiteness. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's significant for a number of reasons. Uh, we know that what this body of law called anti-miscegenation law did was it worked to to centralize patriarchal power squarely mm-hmm. among and within white men. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and wow. So that, wow, that's crazy. Um, the egos of the 1%, uh, it, you know, it's kind of like you, you – the. Well, obviously, for the African American being called now, uh, it has been an unprecedented uh, journey uh, through what what we have gone through here in America. But yeah. all of the races, or not, and there's no such thing as races, but all of humanity, literally, has been duped uh, and continues to this day. Um, to be in a in a very insidious way benefiting from uh, these laws that were created uh, before, if I'm understanding, before the Constitution, before the first meeting of Congress. True, that's true. Yes, they were invented long before, uh, almost a hundred years. Yeah, actually, and, a little over a hundred years. Yeah, yeah, and so. One would would think, you know, if if tomorrow, it were, I, you know, I don't know what the day is, but let's say, you know, today, you know, it's just, you know, business as usual, day as usual. Tomorrow, all of a sudden, there's going to be this new designation uh, of of race. So let's so let's say like the transgendered community are going to be uh, the new bottom that was created uh, for. Uh, as as we as it was created in 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 1681, where we became the new bottom, and and, and so literally in a 24-hour period of time, you know, all transgender people can't vote, they can't uh, uh, own guns, they can't uh, sue, they can't, they have no rights whatsoever, and bam, I mean that's what happened. Right. That's right. Well, what you happened. That's crazy. It, it's absolutely crazy. So let me fill in the store, parts of the story now. And I'm not picking on history that you're alluding to. A, just using that as an example of how, you know, crazy, crazy sound. Yeah, that is. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But how real so it could be, especially with the people that we have in office today. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it, it had to be, I mean, if we could all imagine uh, Congress, 
coming up with an entirely new label for a majority group, numer- a, a numerical majority. Mm-hmm. I mean, that would be crazy. It would be crazy. Right. And, and we would all, and, and those who are in the group or not in the group would all be asking, well, well who's in and who's out and how do you know and what, is it, what does it mean mm-hmm. to be in that group? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so those, those kinds of questions were answered very quickly um, with the invention of white people. And let me, I, I thought of another important historical piece that I, that I haven't folded in yet. So let me do that really quickly. Theodore Allen, um, in his research, he really dove into letters written between the ruling elite in Virginia mm-hmm. and the legal oversight authority in London. And mm-hmm. it, it is in these communications where it is revealed how completely panicked um, the folks in London, who, who they're corporate shareholders, right? Virginia is a corporation. They're the shareholders. They're completely feeling threatened in their investment. Um, and the um, ruling elite in Virginia communicate to them saying, look, don't worry about Bacon's Rebellion. We are going to, we have a plan to ensure that this will never happen again. Mm. And they, they reveal that their plan is to take a divide and conquer approach. So that's a really significant piece of information. Um, so the next thing that we see happening as a matter of uh, legal enactments um, is this assertion of this new group of humanity called white people through, uh, through a whole body of laws, a whole bunch of laws that worked to assert that new group called mm-hmm. white people mm-hmm. and gave it meaning. Um, and what they ended up doing through these laws um, and I'll, I'll review you've mentioned you've already mentioned a few of them, but I'll review them again. Mm-hmm. Um, what they do is they give meaning to to white, and it also these laws work to completely fundamentally restructure colonial society. Mm-hmm. And so um, let's look at some of these laws. One of the first laws required that um, indentured servants be paid a certain amount of goods, including gun and powder upon completion of their term of service. Mm -hmm. And in contrast, um, another law prohibited free persons of African descent from being in possession of gun and powder. Mm. So I just want people to soak that in for a second because that's right. The implications of that are, are really huge. Think about what it, when, when they thought about uh, like Obama was going to take away their guns. And just imagine, you know, that the level of panic uh, that that ensued in whites when 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 they, which was never the case, but just the thought or the talk of it was just you know insane. So imagine that it's now a legal law. And and think of the context. I mean, this is rough. Um, yeah. Brain. This yeah. is really a, a, you know, it's not like living in the suburbs in your house. You know, this is really rough um, wilderness, mm-hmm. you know, largely. Um, so a very different context. So another law that was passed that worked to give meaning to this group called white people um, and to reshape the meanings assigned to persons of African descent was a law that made it illegal for 
uh, a person of African descent to testify against a white person. Mm. So from a context where free British and free Africans have the same privileges and opportunities as a matter of law, that that's shattered. That will never be the same with this new body of law. Wow. Because because that law in and of itself, and of course there was a whole slew of laws, but if, even if we just look at that one, it virtually ensures that persons of African descent are going to be in a subservient position to, to the most depraved white person. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because the law imposes it. Wow. And so we, we have this series of laws that worked to um, – ultimately to create a, a new bottom to colonial society. And it shoved persons of African descent and members of native tribes in that new bottom. Mm-hmm. Um, and the previous bottom of society that existed is now one that um, only white people hold. Mm-hmm. And, and so you see that the ruling elite, they didn't hand over a penny in restructuring society and shoring up their position and their access to resources. They didn't have to spend a penny um, to ensure Bacon's Rebellion would happen again, wouldn't happen again, excuse me. What they did was they created a new bottom to society. They shoved persons of African descent and made native tribes in there. And they, they threw this invention of a new group of people called white people and sharing that label with them, they worked to create a connection between the ruling elite and the masses of laborers now called white people. Wow. And, and that connection is one of white superiority, the presumption mm-hmm. of their superiority over all those other people. Unbelievable. See, people, when I lecture, people have no trouble understanding this, the, the new social reality post-Bacon's Rebellion. People mm-hmm. never have questions about it. We all get it, and there's a reason we get it, because we're still living it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, you, it's it, very much like the, your, the footprint is with us. Yeah, I was going to say it's like you know what you're saying. Uh, it's it's almost like uh, it's in real time. It's like it hasn't been you know 500 years or you know 600 years. Absolutely amazing. Um, so you know, let if, if we have a little bit more time, talk to us about what does it mean to once you are exposed to this information, what does it mean to be white? Well, absolutely. It, well, it, it makes it clear that what it, what it means to be white is that, that whiteness was something done to, to all of us and that it, you can't separate that category white from it's assertion of superiority. You simply can't. It, mm-hmm. Its invention was imbued with the presumption of its superiority. Um, and so it, it sheds a whole, um, at least for me, it was an entirely new twist on, on understanding whiteness and being white. Mm-hmm. And, and there was nothing, you know, it's hard to, some people want to um, find some positive something about mm-hmm. about whiteness, mm-hmm. and and I think that's 
um, truly wrongheaded. Now, have some white people done some good things? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Are there some um, people with white skin who have contributed um, ideals and ways of being that we might want to emulate? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. But in terms of whiteness as something to, to draw upon, it I, I think that that is, misses the essence of what this invented category is and mm-hmm. and what it what no it is. No way to clean it up. No and way to, right, yeah. No, way no to it, it, it you, you well you would you would be making a new white. It wouldn't be drawing <sighs> on something from the past. Right. Does that make right. sense? You would right. have to be Absolutely. reconstructing a new, an entirely new. But people often think of restoring something from a past, and and that doesn't that sort of redemptive restoration I think that's doesn't. Pretty powerful too exist. that you can't you you really can't undo uh, whiteness going back in the past and trying to heal it or correct it. It's not possible. No, because no, because it's very inventive from the moment of its invention it has been to to divide and conquer it has been about power and suppression so literally i remember you saying those are the, you know i think i asked you uh, in a previous interview what was what was the reason for white people to be invented what is their purpose and you said white people exist for only two reasons and that was it to divide That's and conquer right. and to uh protect the one percent that's exactly right. Wow. Dr. Jacqueline Battalore, ladies and gentlemen, she is the author of Birth of a White Nation. Uh, obviously on Amazon, go get it, and and you will not be able to put it down. So make sure when you get it that you have uh, some time because you page it's a page turner. And here's the rub. It ain't fiction. It's actually true <laughs> actual law so uh it, it might read or feel like fiction and say oh i can't this can't be but it is absolutely one of the best history books uh that that uh i have read and i've read quite a few uh that's the other thing that we'll do when we have you come back on and talk about you know uh where is this being taught and why isn't this being taught uh to our to our children we just you know we're, we're not doing the columbus thing anymore why are we not t- uh, teaching and telling people um, really the foundational cause and structure of America. Happy to do so. I appreciate you. All right, Doc. Take care, everybody. We'll see you guys. Well, we won't see you because this is the radio show. But we'll hear from you soon on the <laughs> Philippe Matthew Show radio show. Take care, everybody. Take care, Doc. Thank you so much. All righty. Bye-bye.